Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien from Goldsmiths University of London. On this episode, we'll be talking to Professor Jen Harvey from Queen Mary, University of London. She's the author of Fair Play, Art, Performance and Neoliberalism, which is published uh, by Palgrave Macmillan in 2013. So welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm discussing Fair Play, Art, Performance and Neoliberalism, with Professor Jen Harvey from Queen Mary University, London. Cool, I got that right. That's yeah, good. Of course. <laughs> uh, so, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, this, I think, is a very, very timely book, um, which speaks to a lot of things that are going on um, in culture generally, particularly in the UK, but also it has important mm. global lessons. So, to kick off, I wonder if you could say a bit about sort of your intellectual background and your history before you wrote the book and kind of where the book developed from? Okay, uh, well, so I'm Canadian, that's where my accent is from, and I did my BA and MA in Canada, so I'm going way back, but um, that matters because the kind of critical work that I was doing in Canada before I left was in post-colonialism, and especially um, the, the specificity of Canada as a first world or privileged post-colonial nation. So I'm interested in the, in the power politic, cultural power politics um, but and not sort of um, you know obviously black and white kind of um, good and bad power politics, but recognizing that power politics are much more complicated normally. And I was also um, interested. I did a lot of work in feminism, and so my grounding there is in postcolonialism and socialist feminism. And I did my PhD at the University of Glasgow, and I went deliberately to Glasgow to be in another um, small but privileged. Um, nation and uh, with its, its own post-colonial history but also its own imperial history and I did work on um, Scottish women writers especially my PhD was on Liz Lochhead who's a, now the Scottish Macar, the um, poet, a national poet of Scotland. So I'm interested in national politics and that kind of thing and that led into my first monograph which was called uh, Staging the UK and that is an exploration of the ways in which uh, national and sort of sub-national international, European, so uh, sort of identities that relate to nation are produced partly in various ways through performance. And each section of that book, each chapter of that book, looks at a different kind of manifestation of that kind of identity formation through a different aspect of performance. Um, And that the kind of work I do on performance is sometimes textual, but is more often about uh, context of production or modes of production or forms of performance. So, for example, there's a section which is on site-specific performance and deals especially with a Welsh, Welsh company called Breath Goff and is interested in the ways that through their work, which exploits a lot of practices which are seen as uh, continental European, it d- explicitly and um, deliberately affiliated itself with continental Europe as a Welsh company, not with England, not with Britain, but with Europe. Um, and I also looked, for example, in that book at the Edinburgh Festivals, as an example of something that which has a really important local like Edinburgh and Scottish history in terms of the kinds of economies that it was supposed to develop um, and the kind of national identity it's supposed to promote or understood to promote and its original European history. So founded after the second world war in 1947 explicitly as uh, a festival to promote European unification and communication, all that kind of thing, increasingly a globalized, uh, 
market. <laughs> and, and so again, in that context, I was trying to think about what, how can we understand the Edinburgh festivals as articulating something about the sort of um, coincidence, the way things come together around a local identity, a national identity, a European identity, a global identity. Um, so that's what that work was on. And, uh, that's, so that was 2005 that book was published. And since then, I wrote a small monograph, which is called Theatre in the City. I co-edit a series for Palgrave Macmillan, which is called Theatre And, which has over 25 books in it now. And I wrote Theatre in the City. And so that and that explores the kind of ways, the various ways that critical theories understood or theories have understood the ways that performance um, in cities helps us understand both those things. And there's two main routes of exploration that I follow. One is a kind of materialist analysis, which looks at the ways that performance in relation to the city helps us understand some of the difficult material conditions of life in the city. And then there's another approach, a kind of performative approach, which looks especially at things like activism and protest and is often kind of utopian in the ways that it reads performance in the city. And I was trying to think about, well, what's the relationship between those two, those quite distinct approaches and how might we try to put them together um, as a critical practice? So that was this short book that I did before. And then I've also done, um, I co-wrote The Routledge Companion to Theatre and Performance um, with Paula Lane, and that's had two editions. And that's a kind of key, that's a key words, key ideas, key practices book, um, which um, expanded my mind into lots mm. of new things and uh, helped me learn a lot about, about a lot of stuff and which I really enjoyed working on. And, and also tries to argue about, well, the relationship between theatre studies and performance studies, what is a situated British perspective on those things in certain ways. And I also co-edited um, a couple of other things like um, making, uh, making Contemporary Theatre with Andy Lavender, which is about international rehearsal processes, and a, a couple of issues of Contemporary Theatre Review, um, so one after Fair Play, which is about London 2012 Olympics with Karen Science, and one 2006 with Dan Rebelotto, <clears throat> excuse me, which is about uh, theatre and globalisation. So that's <clears throat> the context of the work that I do. And lots of those things um, come up in Fair Play, actually, mm -hmm. like particularly um, questions of sort of performance and space, issues mm -hmm. of markets, um, and the role of contemporary performance um, and a whole different range um, of how the modern world is kind of lived in, structured and experienced. But I guess the, the central thing in the book is really to address um, almost a kind of a, a moment of crisis for a whole variety of different reasons. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about the kind of, yeah, the central thesis that the book is, is looking to put forward. Yeah, so the book is, the book started, um, I'll just give you a little bit of preamble about where how the book started. So I, I was interested in, I'm interested in trends in performance. So I was interested in the trend towards participation in performance, but also in art. And so, but, you know, things like going into an installation and being able to move around and touch it. And in theater, um, immersive performance where audiences wander around and maybe interact with uh, um, art, the parent artists and all that kind of thing. And the kind of main uh, quickest way of reading that is to see it as an increasing democratization um, for where, where there's the, the break between the audience and spectators is broken down and audiences get to do more and have agency, have power. And so the kind of quick and, and, and empowering lots of ways reading is that this is an opportunity to see greater distribution of, of power and democracy. 
And without being a kind of total naysayer, I felt, of course, that that isn't everything that's mm. going on. Yeah, because you link that actually to um, literature that's emerged on things like precarity, mm-hmm. the nature of modern work, mm-hmm. and flexibility, which yeah. um, is what you do um, in uh, the, is it the, first, yeah, the first chapter of the book. So actually, mm-hmm. actually it might be interesting to, at this point to, yeah, to hear a bit more about that. Actually. Yeah, so, so, I mean, so the... The crisis, the problem, or the crisis that I wanted to ad- address, which then I'll go and talk about precarity, is what I saw. This is symptomatic of was is the crisis in a social social democracy moving into increased neoliberal capitalism and what that means socially. So for me, that is a social crisis because I see social democracy and its forms as being about mutual, mutual support um, and connected sociality where we care about each other. And I see the risk of neoliberal capitalism, like other, lots of other people, as being much more about individualization and um, selfishness, literally. And uh, th- that, for me, that's really problematic. So, so that, so in terms of, I wanted to think about how participation could could offer some potentially some democratic opportunity, but also is symptomatic of some of these other problems of neoliberal capitalism. Um, so, for example, you refer to labor, and so what, one of the kind of ways that the audience's labor or participation in performance uh, is seen as a good thing is that we all get to do stuff. And so another way of reading that is to say, well, if we, we might not see me as a performer in the immersive performance as an actor, but as a worker. And if I think of myself as uh, a delegated laborer or an outsourced laborer, it's very different than thinking of myself as a, an empowered um, other actor. And so, and that, I mean, again, that can sound like, oh, you're killjoy, Jen, you know, like I'm having fun doing this, but I suppose what I, you know, be performing in the immersive performance, and that's probably true, but I also want us to think about the ways that it's symptomatic. It might help us think, yeah, about how there's increasing outsourcing of labor globally, uh, which we all know about in terms of, you know, privileged and underprivileged workers around the world and how um, less, less good um, labor conditions are generally outsourced, you know, taken away from our site, all that kind of thing. So how this might be a little bit like that. Mm. Um, and then how it might have other sort of symptoms of uh, outsourced or delegated um, and kind of um, new capitalist labor condition experiences. Like, for example, if um, so people like Richard Sennett have written a lot about the, uh, the effects of, of changing labor conditions around Lots of change, the way we're you know asked to change our jobs frequently. We maybe change our colleagues really frequently. Maybe we we work um, remotely and then together uh, or in an alienated contexts. So we might feel de-skilled and alienated and all those kinds of things. And I think that um, you know participating like temporarily in a performance is a kind of micro uh, experience of that kind of thing, where I take on the labor and I don't really know my fo- my coworkers. And I don't have security and uh, I don't have the same kind of job satisfaction that I might have had in a different setup. Yeah. And you flag up the way that actually in some of the case studies you use, that participation is not, uh, you know, democratic co-production, mm, mm. but actually it's quite prescribed and mm-hmm. quite limited mm-hmm. and quite directed as well. Mirroring again, these kinds of labor conditions that seem to um, place uh, the kind of the burden for performance onto the worker without any of these sort of the benefits as it were. Absolutely. And I, and I also make the point that, you know, especially with theater and performance, it's still the main artist's name on the tin kind of thing, you know, so the kind of star brand identity still gets the credit. And even if we're doing the stuff, it it doesn't fundamentally change those kind of hierarchies. Mm, Yeah, very much so. And it's interesting actually 
in that first chapter, even where you're, you know, kind of stressing some of the more kind of interesting positive transformations of space, mm-hmm. such as the things that have gone on in um, London's Tate Modern in its turbine hall, the questions of, I guess, the kind of the engineering expertise, you know, the sort of the technical aspects um, that allow some of these performances to happen, they are relegated to, you know, almost invisibility because of, yeah, the star brand, the name of the artist who's seen as responsible and gets gets the glory, I guess. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, you know, and I'm also, that's, this book is, it's like, is not trying to say this is all bad and this is all good. So mm. constantly throughout the book, I am trying to find ways in which, you know, we might understand these change conditions as potentially productive. Mm. So that's why I'm interested, for example, I look in that chapter at not only the ways that um, labor is sort of delegated down, but also the ways that artists ex- um, use greater, you know, greater expertise, like hiring engineers or whatever. Um, and and the, my positive reading of that, which I'm trying to do throughout, is to say, well, maybe we it might give us pause to think about mm-hmm. what is that greater expertise? Um, what what would it, what is an engineer or what is a sign? What who is the scientist that needed to help Damien Hurst? preserve his shark in the fish tank for however, however many years that it managed to be preserved, that kind of thing. Um, but in general, I'm a little bit skeptical that the, that we, we see in this model, in these kind of shifting models, uh, you know, anything, anything particularly progressive in terms of labor relations, we actually see problematic labor relations. Uh, and this carries over really kind of obviously into the question of what's the role of the artist in uh, contemporary society. So you talk a lot about, um, culturepreneurs or entrepreneurs and the kind of um, relationship between new forms of entrepreneurial discourses mm-hmm. and the role of the artist, which again, you know, you mentioned a couple of possible positives, particularly about um, artists and performers having to sort of be attentive to audiences, um, you know, possibly having networked forms of sociability, um, you know, maybe, you know, choosing uh, topics that might reveal unfair social relations but actually in the main you point out there are you know really serious structural problems about um in effect forcing artists and performers in the culture sector generally to be entrepreneurs yeah i think i am fundamentally pretty skeptical about this so on the one hand yeah i i mean as a teacher of theater and performance of course we want our students to be um independent these are values that we do you know encourage and support independence um, uh, resilience, um, uh, multi-skilledness. So, you know, not only to be able to make the work, but to be able to produce it effectively and all that kind of thing. However, if it, the more it seems to become necessary that artists do that all the time. So become their own producers, um, their own fundraisers, which is something we'll come back to the you know, manager and managers and all that kind of thing. The risk, there's so many risks attached to that for me. So the first, I mean, obvious risks around, you know, the, the potential for the art to get really deprioritized. But more significantly, I think the risk that culturally we, we, we just don't value art as much as we value those other things, but also that we require people to, to work individually all the time and to always um, be, have individual responsibility. Again, I think we should, everybody should have individual responsibility, but what gets lost in the picture is social and structural support. So going back to my concern with the ways we can see these art trends and these performance trends as symptomatic of other cultural and social trends. Um, and so to, for an individual to always be responsible for their own thing, uh, yeah, it takes away structures of support and takes away our expectation that those should exist, legitimates an expectation that the individual always has to take, take main responsibility for him or herself. 
that sort of individualization, I think, sits alongside two other points you make in that chapter about the sort of the problem of artistic entrepreneurialism. One of which is to do with um, the ambivalent relationship that art has to ideas about innovation and particularly the concept of creative destruction. Mm-hmm. And the other is um, around questions of productivity, growth and profit. And I wonder if we mm-hmm. could do both of those in turn. Um, and I found um, the use of discussing creative destruction quite important because obviously that's a key uh, kind of figure in the way um, many writers conceive of contemporary capitalism. Mm-hmm. And so what is the kind of the, I guess, the what gets lost in the wake of, you know, innovative artistic practice that seems to have to destroy things for its, um, you know, its kind of, its, its justification and its, uh, its success. Yeah. So I get, I get, I was engaged by the idea of creative destruction, as you say, so as a model, as a kind of understood model for the ways that um, capitalism perpetuates itself. So, for example, things become obsolete and then therefore we need a new one. So there's new things like telephone technology, for example, is a really obvious example, M- music technology, so that we always need to be buying new things. So the, the principle of capitalist development is that things have to become obsolete. And so one of the things I was really interested in looking at in, um, in, in that chapter was art practices which are exploring that problem. Um, and there's a long history of artists who destroy things. Um, and so, but I was particularly interested in artists, contemporary British artists, especially who are um, exploring the, the, basically the human cost of that kind of destruction. And Michael Landy is a brilliant example, I think, of that, who's done a lot of work around um, um, the scrap heap services, for example, where he's uh, um, epitomizing his own experiences of being on the job market, feeling like he was a bit of scrap and all that kind of thing. But it's, and especially, well, notably, famously, his piece Breakdown, um, where he destroyed all of his own possessions. And then more recently, the, um, the work that he did in Tate Britain, um, which was um, the, front, the front of his parents' suburban home and projected inside with films about his father. And whose father, who was uh, an Irish immigrant, who was um, profoundly uh, physically um, injured in a, a tra- tunnel collapse as a worker, and I think his... 30s, late 30s, I think he was, um, and then he never worked again, and his life was profoundly affected by that, and therefore Michael's uh, Jr.'s life was affected by that as well. So th- Michael Andy is an example of an artist who's making work, which is drawing attention to the human cost of that kind of, uh, potentially that kind of approach to the, the kind of obsolescence or um, sort of disposability of, of, of stuff as capitalism drives ever forward. Um, and and I, so that's what, um, so that that inspires me, and I think that's part of what the book is trying to do, is at the same time as um, sort of charting what I see as a really uh, aggressive uh, march of neoliberal capitalism culturally and socially and, and in terms of governance in the UK, um, I don't think that art escapes that, or art and performance escape that all the time, and I'm lo- definitely looking to art and performance to show examples where it's possible to prize open cracks in that kind of edifice and critique it and all that kind of thing. And so I think, so I was keen to look in that context at um, art practices like Landy's, which uh, show, show alternative or show the problems of that kind of attitude and approach. And similarly, the problem of art and culture becoming just about productivity, mm-hmm. growth and profit. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And um, I mean, you give a couple of examples, you know, Steve McQueen's work, that kind yeah. of thing as well. Yes. In that, con- in that context, they talk about craft and art and artists who I think are, yeah, aren't trying to produce things for, um, for sale or for 
um, a kind of uh, sort of object oriented thing, but also ch- um, ch- um, recalibrating our, our kind of the way that we value the kind of uh, work that is involved in making art. And so emphasizing craft. So Mike Landy, um, Mike, not I talked about Mike Landy, Michael Landy, but uh, yeah, Steve McQueen is an example there that I talk about. Jeremy Deller is yeah. an artist who I think is brilliant in that context. And Grayson Perry Grayson comes Perry. up as well. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting that, um, I guess, kind of hopeful, optimistic um, moments runs throughout the text, you know, the kind of possibilities offered, mm-hmm. the critical moments. is something that's really central to the discussion of spaces and places, mm-hmm. um, which you draw really kind of, um, I guess, clear uh, attention to the way that um, new forms of performance practice that are site-specific have gone sometimes, you know, hand in hand with gentrification, uh, urban social change that, you know, is about displacing populations uh, and is really transforming areas for the benefits of of wealth and, in the case of London, international capital. Mm. Um, and you use, again, examples um, from Landy, you know, Rachel White Reed's house, these kind of things. And I wonder if you could say a bit about how uh, this works, both, I guess, the kind of the problem of site-specific art as gentrification, but also where it might be critical. Mm. So my way into this chapter was I was interested in, well, two things I was interested in. So um, uh, I suppose one of the things I was interested in was the opportunities that urban change is producing for artists. And so um, things like, you know, closed shops on the high streets are great venues <laughs> for artists to step in and yeah, make yeah. pop-up venues for, for <laughs> galleries or for exhibitions or performances or whatever. And again, as a teacher, I would definitely say, you know, to my students, go, you know, make your work wherever you can. Um, that's These are great opportunities. Go for it. And and then the other side of this is um, is really the, the kind of risks, what, what kind of long-term risks do these things affect? And so we see, repeatedly we see with that kind of temporary movement, uh, artists move in, um, literally uh, venues or areas are improved. And there's a great example in the book, I think, from um, the guy who runs uh, Felix Garrett, I think his name is, who runs Punch Drunk, and he talks about them going in and taking over spaces and doing things like improving the plumbing, stripping out asbestos, I mean, you know, fundamental stuff that they do to improve buildings. And then once they've done that, then the building becomes, first of all, the neighborhood becomes more attractive and the building becomes operable in a way. So they've kind of done a work of, improving the space and then um, more capitals um, like housing or something like that moves in. So, and, and I, I'm really keen to say that I don't think art is kind of uh, deliberately or, or di- directly responsible for um, producing gentrification, but I think that it can contribute to the kind of um, Petri dish uh, uh, um, sort of, uh, I don't know, what's the word for that? Um, where it's a hospitable kind of context. Yeah, the, the right conditions, <laughs> conditions for yeah. certain kinds of urban transformation yeah. that, you know, vibes themselves with art and culture but end up looking like Canary Wharf or Baltimore's Waterfront or downtown Manhattan's skyscrapers or all yeah. these kind of things. Yeah, so and I, so I do think it's, a, and I don't, I really don't want to blame artists and I want to think about, well, what, you know, how, how what is the role, you mm. know, as a kind of catalyst, I suppose, um, in that in that context and, and are there ways of preventing it? And are there conditions where it's, we have to be most kind of aware of the risks? And, and in that chapter, I'm really keen to point out that actually I think, yes, London now is a, is a context where we have to be really keenly aware. Uh, you know, Londoners know, you know, how expensive property is. And we may, we may also know 
that there are um, great pressures on social housing and affordable housing. And that chapter is keen also to delineate all kinds of government legislative change, which is making it more and more difficult for people to sustain um, social and affordable housing and, and making it more and more likely that people who live in social and affordable housing will find it increasingly unaffordable and, th- and there will be less social housing and more people will be moved out. So that in that context, I describe it as being a kind of um, not a perfect storm, which sounds like it's natural, but um, a sort of a greenhouse context where the, the conditions have been ripened by this um, current uh, conservative liberal Democrat coalition government. Um, you mentioned London um, as kind of one of the um, examples of where these sorts of uh, spatial changes are going on. And London sort of is really important to the book and runs mm-hmm. right throughout the book, all of the examples. And you, you sort of deal with uh, with this in the introduction to the book where you sort of say, you know, look, I know this is quite London-centric, but there are good reasons for that. And I wonder if you could sort of talk through why you chose London as the kind of the, the site um, for, I guess, kind of testing some of the theoretical interests the book has. Yeah, well, um, I'm so I'm based in London, so I'm being honest about the fact these are my re- this is my research site. But more more importantly, I think that the um, that there's an agglomeration of creative practices that are happening here that I uh, that are the kind of creative practices I wanted to look at and focus on. Although I do look at other creative practices happening around the UK um, with reference to other places outside of the UK. Um, and I think this, um, London is a site of both uh, lots and lots of creative practice and also um, a kind of acute experience of some of the particular social and government conditions that the book is concerned with. So, for example, in this chapter, which is about um, space and the kind of shift to, from uh, kind of um, appreciation for public or affordable spaces towards more privatized and uh, closed and neoliberalized spaces, that is that is something that is happening in profound ways in London right now, and I want to engage with the detail of a particular site, specifically London, in this context, in order to be precise about what what the what the conditions are, what the um, what's happening, and then what the consequences are. And absolutely, I think a lot of these a lot of con- uh, conclusions I draw in this book about our practice, especially in London, are uh, transferable to many other neoliberalized and especially metropolitan conditions around the world. Um, and, and but not all of them are. I mean, lots of cities don't have the same kind of um, com- uh, housing bubble as London has. Um, and I think that is sim- that is absolutely symptomatic of our neoliberal capitalized society right now. So I think that London, I both wanted to be very precise and I wanted to use this kind of extraordinary, extraordinary kind of ripe example of um, these conditions. Those conditions obviously are framed by uh the kind of contemporary uh, governance settlement um, here in the UK, but more specifically in England and then, then in London. And, and that's the kind of the core question that the end of the book deals mm-hmm. with, which, um, you know, really comes down to, um, I guess, trying to assess what the impact of um, the defunding um, of the arts by public bodies is. And not just the sort of the risks or the challenges um, for uh, arts organisations facing less state investment, but also the way that this relates directly to changes in um, the model of kind of the welfare state mm-hmm. and a broader model of social cohesion that you identify earlier in the book. And it'd be really interesting to hear, I guess, um, both um, what you think is going on in terms of that 
those broader changes in their relationship to arts funding, but also perhaps like what you think is the best way to kind of mm. deal with um, how we fund the arts and the arts kind of proper relationship to society. So just little questions. Yeah, really. that's a small one. But uh, <laughs> actually the day that you and I were recording this day, but yesterday I was at an event that um, arts admin and live art development agency and a home light art, live art organized with platform, the organization which uh, is activist against, uh, well, for uh, against climate change. And um, that the title was take the money and run. And it was about funding in this country. So it's something I've just recently been thinking about again. So, the, so in context, we know that in 2010, with the election of this government in 2010, there was a reduction of funding from the Arts Council to arts organizations, um, or the Arts Council's budget was reduced by 30%. And, um, and over the, my estimate of over the next, well, to 2018, which is when the next settlement has been identified to add a, a kind of... Um, sort of modest estimate would be over over that sort of eight-year period, there's been a reduction of about 35% in arts funding to arts organizations. From, from funding to Arts Council England, which doesn't include funding from the government to local authorities and county councils, which, is, uh, which has also been drastically reduced. One estimate is that um, local authorities in London have had about a 33% reduction to local authority funding much of which gets passed on to what are understood to be, you know, kind of uh, slushier areas or um, sort of areas of choice, uh, which often includes um, sort of educational add-ons and the arts. And so we know that that's having an effect on arts funding. Um, So, for example, um, uh, Westminster has cut its arts funding by 100%. And Somerset County Council, I believe, has also cut their arts funding by 100%. Newcastle has cut their arts funding by 50%. Thirdly, another major effect, um, sort of influence on arts funding right now has to do with withdrawal or diversion of lottery funding. So lots of lottery funding went from from about 2005-06 towards the Olympics to the tune of 2.2 billion, much of which is supposed to come back to arts or to the lottery fund. But the amount is like 300 and something million. So a fraction. And then much of it apparently won't even come back to the lottery fund until 2030-31. So it's about 25 years, a whole generation that it's being diverted. So massive, massive cuts in government state, state funding of the arts. So this, I think, yeah, there's a bunch of not corollary effects of that. F- fundamentally, I think it's a symptomatic of a withdrawal of, this, of state welfare and, a, and, a, and a, an understanding of wh- where we live and how we live as dedicated to um, a welfare state. And and I mean, it kind of, I think a lot of people are put off by the idea of welfare um, and think that it's, um, you know, feed spongers and all that kind of thing. So an, a kinder and, and more appropriate way of thinking about it might be to think about it as a, um, a state of sociality where we care for each other. And so, and so I, you know, clearly the reduction of arts funding goes hand in hand with reduction in funding to um, other areas of, of care, like health um, and education, international aid, those kinds of things, legal support. Um, those kinds of things. So I think it's absolutely symptomatic of that kind of withdrawal. The corollary effect, so the government, while withdrawing all that money, is trying to promote philanthropy as a way of filling in the holes, but also changing our, our ways of working. So expecting arts and artists and arts organizations to ask individuals or companies for funding, which is absolutely part of this neoliberal capitalist drive in terms of the, the predominance or the power of our, our organizations, companies to make, make choices about what kinds of arts we see rather than an arms like um, arts council providing funding. Um, and 
Oh, so yeah, so problematic. I mean, I like to. For the, at the heart of the word philanthropy is love of people. So I, I mean, I don't want to say that philanthropy can't be a good thing. However, in its enactment, it generally is the case that larger, better established, older organizations tend to benefit from philanthropy. They have a longer track record. There's buildings that people can see their names on, all that kind of thing. So that's true. What what are the implications? It means that smaller organizations, more innovative practices, newer organizations are much less likely to benefit. So what does that mean? It means that we have less of those kinds of things. Um, So so that's a real, um, that's another really big corollary problem with um, uh, philanthropy. Uh, What else did I want to say about it? I mean, I also think it can do, you know, the emphasis... It can cultivate competition, especially amongst artists and arts organizations, even things like crowdfunding, um, uh, you know, which on a, on a kind of positive way, we might see them as producing new networks, um, showing networks, say, of friendship and all that kind of thing. I definitely think they also, crowdsourcing or crowdfunding um, displaces, again, structural responsibility away from the state towards all kinds of individuals and also puts pressure on the relationships amongst those individuals, you know, where like poor, you know, amongst artists, lots of poor people give money to each other um, that they don't have much of. Uh, so I think there are, you know, many kind of corollary, corollary problems. Does that answer the question yeah, that you asked? But I suppose the hopeful moments in that chapter, mm. and it's, you know, the kind of the note the book um, moves towards finishing on is that there might be a socially democratic moment, particularly through uh, the capacity of culture to sort of, reveal these social relations and thus you know in the revealing at least create uh, the possibilities of another world and something different absolutely yeah and that is definitely what i want to try to conclude in the book um and i and i feel i mean i feel that as a momentum in the uk now as well i mean certainly with amongst arts organizations and artists that there's um a lot of effort to to support each other and preserve the work that people do and um, and not not become um, sort of overwhelmed by the expectations that this government is trying to impose. I mean, that, that's sort of a, a really good potted summary of, of mm-hmm. the book. Um, where are you going next in terms of, are you developing more stuff based on fair play? I mean, you mentioned a book about the Olympics mm-hmm. um, and the sort of the culture around that. Um, or are you doing something completely different? Okay, well, so yeah, the, I did co-edited um, a special issue of Contemporary Theatre Review, which is called, um, was on the cultural politics of London 2012. Um, so that definitely followed up on a lot of the stuff that was in here. I was especially interested in, in an article I wrote for that um, in the representation of um, East London. So one of the pillars of the government's commitments in making their bid for that Olympics was that would, the Olympics would, quote unquote, regenerate the heart of East London. And I think the jury is still out there. Um, and I don't think that we're seeing a lot of the benefits that we should see. So that's probably what that's about. There's two main projects that I'm working on uh, coming up next. The current project I'm working on is with my colleague here at Queen Mary University of London, Lois Weaver. And this is I'm editing and um, writing with Lois um, on that book. It's, it's called The Only Way Home is Through the Show, the performance work of Lois Weaver. And it's a... Lois is um, a founder of Split Bridges Theatre Company in about 1980 and has been making performance that whole time. Um, a, you know, one of the key figures in feminist and les- lesbian performance. And so it's a book about the amazing work that Lois has done. And uh, it's a real pleasure to work on. It relates to fair play in the sense that for me, it's a great example of all kinds of fantastic um 
product, uh, sort of socially positive um, uh, practices. So I'm, and I feel that fair play um, focuses on the kind of social conditions in which art and performance are happening, reads a lot of art and performance, um, but, but, um, but often that is secondary in the, in the way that I wrote the book. And I wanted to try to do more work with art and art practice. So that's working with Lois on her practice is a really great part of that. And I'm really loving that. And that should be out in this year, 2015, with um, Intellect and Live Art Development Agency in a series called Intellect Live. And the next project I want to work on, however, um, is it goes back really explicitly to Fair Play. Um, and, it's a, and it's a feminist project in response, um, carrying on from Fair Play. So I'm especially in that project, I'm especially interested in the ways that some of the conditions of life um, in the UK under this government and the next government are especially affecting women. And, um, and I want to think about the ways that art and performance, well, performance and theatre are responding to those conditions. Um, so there seems to be a resurgence of feminism, which I'm really thrilled about as a late 80s, early 90s feminist. And, um, and, I, and I want to uh, look at what theatre and performance, feminist theatre and performance is doing now, because I think there's an extraordinary burgeoning of it. And, and a lot of it is responding to, you know, profound conditions that we're experiencing now here under neoliberal capitalism around things like um, difficulty, you know, work prob- issues around work, um, issues around care and, and aging um, and healthcare and those kind and education. Um, and so I want to look at that, those kinds of performances, but I also want to look at, um, you know, modes of production um, so uh, if we, there might be models of feminist producing um, that might be responding to some of these pressures that uh, Fair Play explores. Um, and I also want to go back, I want to uh, look again at feminist criticism, which in theatre and performance uh, kind of peaked in the 1990s and then has had little bubbles of interest over the last two decades. And I want to look at what uh, feminist criticism in theatre and performance need to be doing in order to assess the kind of work that's happening now most effectively sounds great we'll have to uh, get you back on the podcast to talk about those thanks very much thank you dave um.